0: Welcome to The Sober Effect, a show that looks at the positives of sobriety, the dangers of alcohol, and the many people who are affected by it. I'm Kate.
1: And I'm Steph. The ripple effect of alcohol is far-reaching, and those are the stories you'll hear on The Sober Effect. (laughs) All right, episode four, we have Ricky, who used to be a Marine and is now sober. Um, his story is one that I wanna bring with a warning. I would definitely, I and I think you would agree, Kate, we need to kind of trigger warning this episode because there are Um, stories of suicide involved and so anyone that maybe would have an issue listening to that or feel triggered needs to know
0: ahead of time. It's a very powerful episode this and we deal with a a couple of very very sensitive traumatic and incredibly sad stories and Ricky is an absolute hero for talking about it um, so openly with us but it, I mean, this conversation could have gone on for hours, couldn't it, Steph? Because It really could. Um, it, there was just so much to talk about. As with all of our guests, they're just, they've got such incredible stories. And we're so lucky to get the chance to actually talk to them. I mean, you know, Ricky, we go through so many different topics in this episode. And I think if we talk about the beginning of his life. Both of us found a lot of similarities in it because he grew up in a very open door house where he said, you know, it was like a campsite, son of the times. And when he woke up in the morning, there were just people always there. It was the party house. I know you grew up in that kind of house. I definitely grew up in that kind of house as well. People wanted to be there. It was relaxed, it was fun. And of course, there was alcohol.
1: Yeah. And starting so young, it does something to you. It does something with your coping skills. You just learn to lean so heavily on this substance and you never learn how to develop the skills emotionally to, you know, get through hard times. And Ricky faced some really hard times at that young age. I mean, I was young and drinking and I had I had things come up, but nothing as heavy as what Ricky talks to us about.
0: I think when you start drinking from a young age, you know, we were both around 14 when we started, Mm -hmm. you can't handle alcohol. I mean, it's hard enough as an adult, as we've seen. But, you know, when you're 14, 15, 16, not only are you not developed, but you also don't have a lot of money, you're not going out there and buying you know, um, not that any alcohol is good, but, you know, you're <laughs> buying the cheapest stuff you can find, um, which is is incredibly damaging. It's hard hitting and it, it's cheap. You know, people buy it to get drunk quickly. And because yep. you're young and you don't have a lot of money, that's what you choose.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of whatever you could get your hands on, too. Like, I remember we would take alcohol from my parents bar, mix it with soda or whatever we could find. And then we're filling the bottle back up with water. I mean, like that's what you do, but like, think about that though. Think about that addictive behavior alone where you're just because yeah, financially. And some of us, it was really hard to buy alcohol because you have to get a fake ID or you have to find someone who's old enough. And so, yeah, just, yeah. But to go at any length to get the alcohol, I mean, that's just, that's like, early red flag signs of addiction yeah. right there.
0: And of course, you've got to be 21 in America It's younger yeah. here. You know, so we had a good few years on you, you know, and I looked 18. By the time I was 14, 15. I, I could pull that off. So I was always the one that went into the shops to buy alcohol for my friends. And you know, I was buying for underage people. That's, that's awful in itself. But I was one of them. But I do think You know, we've sort of touched on this before. When you start drinking young and you haven't developed coping skills in life, forget alcohol. You're then dealing with all of the come down and the hangovers and all of that stuff, being drunk, you know, altering your mind, going around and, and being really drunk. And you're trying to deal with that when you're actually still a child in a lot of ways. And that is dangerous. It also prevents you. It stunts your brain from growing because you're recovering You're getting over it. You're doing it again. You're recovering. Where's the time to actually organically grow as a person?
1: Mine was more of like the binge variety, which is actually how I drank as an adult. Like it just continued. So I was always more of, you know, looking forward to the weekend, blowing off steam, you know, drinking until I couldn't drink anymore. And that became a huge pattern because that's kind of how I lived my life all the way through early adulthood and on, because I just, it's like, let's push through the work week or whatever. And then we're going to just completely black out for the weekend. And we think that that's relieving stress. We think that that's, you know, helping, but you're not getting any rest at all. And the, the problems aren't going away. They're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger in the background. And yeah, I mean, it just does nothing to help you. But that's the narrative, right? That's the narrative. Have a drink,
0: yeah. You'll feel Not better. Not to mention all the problems you're creating, right? Because you're going out drunk, and the things you're saying, the things that are happening, the situations, you're making more problems, aren't you? Not forget the brain chemistry and the hangovers and and the depression and anxiety. You're actually going out and doing things. You've then got to try and work through and work out with people you've offended or upset or arguments mm-hmm. you've had or injuries that you've had it, it's kind of it's just it's a it's a tumbleweed going very quickly you can see no. where it's going but you're right you'd still look forward to it you'd still look forward to getting so drunk you couldn't remember anything and then recovering I mean that is just my idea of hell mm-hmm. you know, Ricky went to AA when he was 18 years old now in America, he wasn't he was still a few years off the legal age of having a drink and he walked into that room and said i'm an alcoholic i mean that's the reality of it and he will not be alone
1: let's meet ricky
2: you know my dad was not heavy heavy alcoholic And um, I got two brothers, but we always had our cousins live with us. And so they were like my brothers also. So I basically had four brothers and uh, they're all older. I'm the youngest. My dad owned a lawn care company. So we had a barn out back that he kept all the equipment in and everything. And there was a uh, board on the door that only I was small enough to crawl under. And in the refrigerator in the barn is where my dad kept all his beers. They would tell me, hey, go in there and grab us a water and grab your cell phone while you're at it. And, you know, you're just a naive kid, so uh, I'd go in there and I'd grab some and go out. And then it just turned into a habit, you know. Maybe my brothers weren't there. I had some friends over. And I'm like, hey, do you guys want a water? And I pulled the board away, and they're like, this is beers. And I'm like, well, my dad drinks them, so... You know, he lets my brothers drink them and stuff. So it's all, we're good. And then it just kind of escalates, you know, you get to high school and you're starting to party and everybody's like, Hey, you know, we had the party place. It was a place for everybody else to get away from their parents. You would literally wake up some mornings and my parents were like, it was a campground. Every day it turned into a hangout for my friends. One of my best friends had this bright idea of joining the Marine Corps and uh, it's like, I don't even, didn't even know what the Marine Corps involved. I didn't know what it, whatever. I was like, fuck it, I'm in. Let's let's go, you know. Whose car are we taking, right? So we go to take this test. You got to take an ASFAB test to get the Marine Corps. You got to do, you got to do pull-ups and push-ups. And then you got to have a drug test. Well, the three buddies I went with, they couldn't pass the drug test it was kind of a sign for me to be like, you know what, maybe you just need to get the hell out of here. So I did, I was like, I'm out of here, guys. How old were you at this point? 18.
0: I was just thinking of the similarities to me actually, because I grew up in a house that had like an open door policy. It was the cool house to hang out in London. My parents were relaxed. Everyone wanted to be at our house. There was always alcohol. And, you know, by the time I hit 18, I had partied more than most people were planning on doing when they went to university, and I was exhausted. I'd had enough of partying and drinking by the time I finished school. That says everything, doesn't it? We
1: were too young to take on that addictive substance. We were just way too young, but we wanted to be older. And like you said, Kate, by the time I was done with high school, I had partied so hard. I didn't go to college but I just remember people going to college and talking about how hard they partied in college. And I'm like, well, that was me in high school. like yeah,
0: Exactly. Exactly <laughs> the same. I didn't go to university. I was like, why? So when you, when you join the Marines, what's drinking like in the Marines? I actually used to go out with a guy who went to West Point and I remember visiting him um, and being shocked at the amount they drank because I was imagining them all to take their health so seriously, you know, and all this stuff. And it was, it was crazy. The level of drink um, that was consumed there. Is it, is it, yeah. What was it like in the Marines when it comes to drinking?
2: Well, like you said, it's, it's a whole nother level. And um, so you, you go through boot camp, then you go through your basic training. So you got six months Where there's nothing but 100% health going in your body. And you go to your job. They call it your MOS. I was infantry. But then when you get to the fleet, you got two roommates. But every room has its refrigerator. And you got a PX that's on base right down the street. And, of course, you know, we filled it with beer, obviously. So, yeah, the the drinking escalated. And when you couldn't afford beer, because, I mean, we were broke. um, We'd get Boone's Farm. We'd get mad dog. We'd throw our money together and just, it would be the shittiest alcohol that you could ever even think of.
0: So
2: I, sorry, I don't
0: know what any of that means. We don't, I don't know. It's <laughs> like you speaking a different language to me. What, what is boom dog? What do you Boom Farm's farm is like the
1: cheapest wine you can get. It is the cheapest Okay. Of the cheapest. Like when I was about. I flew none. It was like a $1.99 back in my okay. day. And,
2: and Mad Dog was like a, a liquor. And it Malt was. Absolutely, it, yeah, it was so disgusting. It was horrible. <laughs> oh, but I mean. So we would go to the field. We would be in the field practicing missions and stuff for a week or two at a time. No drinking, no nothing. Um. So when we got out of the field, it was it was time to party. We had three or four days where it was nothing but partying. We would just drink, 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 and then say we had to get up at 3 or 4 AM and go running the next, you know, on Monday morning. And I mean, I don't even know how many times we'd go running and people were puking. It just smelled like 100% alcohol off everybody. We practiced a lot of shooting also, and a lot of our shooting practice was live fire. So we'd go to these big ranges, but the night before, we'd be up partying and stuff. And so we'd go to the armory and draw our weapons, and uh, we'd get in formation and go out to to the live fire range. There was a time where we went out, and there was groups of four, and we were online. And so the middle group would advance, and then... The ends would shoot fire, while well, the the group in front of me went, and uh, the middle group went to go again. And one of the guys didn't get up, and uh, everybody th- because a lot of people just got gun shy, where they would they would just freeze because of the noise and stuff like that. Well, he didn't freeze. What happened was uh, one of the rounds went through the heel of his boot, in. When when the bullet when it hits you it it tumbles when it goes on the inside and it went through his boot up his leg and it ended up coming out his chest and he he did die he died right there and uh,
0: oh my gosh
2: yeah so they they obviously they shut the range down and everything and do you
0: think that was to do with drinking and not being
2: on the ball not being focused yes one hundred percent brain fog. Mm-hmm. One hundred percent. Yeah, it, it, you guys, everything that we did, everything we did, all our drills, um, was basically you're hungover. Uh, some of them are maybe still drunk, or they're like a withdrawal or whatever. You know what I mean?
0: People don't realize how long it takes for alcohol to get out of your system either, because I've remembered, you know, people saying, "Oh, don't worry, I'll drive," and it's like you up drinking at three o'clock, it's only 8 a.m. There's no way you're driving. You are not on the ball. You have not got your wits about you. You can't hold something straight. You might be shaking. I mean, it's just another thing to do with alcohol that I didn't understand how dangerous it was to operate machinery, to go and, you know, all of these things to drive my kids to school when I'd had two bottles of wine the night before. And there's me going, oh, I never drink drive. Well, guess what? That's exactly what I was doing. I just didn't realize it.
1: Yeah, it takes nine hours for a bottle of wine to be out of your system. I've looked it up because once again, I was driving to work still over the legal limit because I easily would drink a bottle of wine and other things, you know? Right. And so that's just driving a car. And then what Ricky's talking about, putting a gun in your hand and you don't have a clear
0: head. These things can happen because alcohol is so accepted and people just assume that you're okay the next day there are no tests there are no checks there are no things that you can do to yourself to make sure you're okay you just assume everyone's here they're awake let's go no one's drinking at the moment and it's
2: that's that's you're exactly right that's exactly how it went a couple of weeks later um we got put on it's called air alert where you're not allowed to leave the base um just be, you, had, you could leave the base like a 10-mile radius, but you had to sign out. You could only be gone for like 20 minutes to a half hour at a time. You had to give a phone number where you were going um, because air alert is basically when we got called to get deployed, uh, you had like 45 minutes to an hour to have everything ready to go. So uh, no alcohol was allowed. You had people that would follow it. You had people that would break it. You had people like myself and others that we drank uh, cough syrup or mouthwash. Anything besides a beer that had alcohol in it, we would basically drink. And we had a Marine. He was heavy drinking, you know, heavy anxiety. He's the one that everybody's. Uh, nose is the one that I was talking about. And, uh, you could tell that it was just, it was weighing heavy on him. And so after air alert got lifted in, uh, everything, we got told that we were going to be going overseas and that was for nine to 10 months. So he went home and, and a week after he went home, he committed suicide in his, uh, his bathroom and uh his wife and kids were there and nobody ever really got the truth out of him because uh you know depression is that silent killer um we all think it was because of the anxiety and everything built up from that live fire range that we were at and uh so i got picked as one of the other there was four of us that got picked to go and uh basically clean the bathroom oh. so we we went and we did what we were told to do and then just seeing everything and doing all of that it was where i said what the fuck am i doing what am i doing to myself and uh that is when I decided that I quit smoking, I quit drinking, I quit dipping, just like that for a solid year. So.
1: Ricky, I have to ask you, during this time when you guys are all on this on this lockdown, what were they doing to help you guys? I mean, you guys witnessed someone die, and then you're all on this lockdown, and then you have another another guy commit suicide, and they ask you to clean it up. Is there any kind of mental health support
2: there was nothing and this was in 1997 when this happened nobody checked on us nobody consulted us nobody asked if we were okay there was absolutely nothing it was just just another day
1: I don't want to say makes sense but it makes sense why the drinking is at the level that it is right Mm -hmm. I just I can't imagine and then for you to, to just decide, well, I'm not going down that road. I mean, that's just amazing to me as someone who ha- always used alcohol to get through really hard things.
0: How did that go down with everyone else when you stopped? Did other people sort of say that's a good idea or did they say, oh, come on? And was there peer pressure to carry on?
2: Um, yeah, there was a lot of peer pressure. Uh, there was a lot of, oh, you're doing it for your girlfriend. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. You got to remember, we didn't have computers. We didn't have Zooms. We didn't have that. I actually, I had to open the yellow pages up and find AA meetings because I I just didn't know anywhere else to go. I was 19. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll never forget the look on their faces. And it got to me and I was like, I'm Ricky and I'm an underage alcoholic. So that was, that was the year that I... I quit everything completely. The healthiest I ever been. My mom, my mom was so proud of me because everybody in my family drinks. So when I, when we got back from uh, overseas, I was drinking again. I just to see the look on my mom's face, I'll never forget it. It just, uh, it hits home, you know, when your mom's so proud of you. And then she wasn't really mad at me. She was more disappointed that's worse
0: it is worse (laughs) there's nothing worse than someone saying they're disappointed in my in my opinion when i say that to my children i can see the look on their face like please anything but that because it's the opposite of when they say they're proud of you basically isn't it
2: yeah 100 percent. so now i'm getting out of the marine corps still drinking heavy drinking
0: what made you start drinking again after a year
2: so on ship, I dipped Copenhagen, but the, we didn't have it on ship. So we had to get it to us in the mail. Is that tobacco? Yes. Yeah, yeah that goes in your lip. Yep. So what they would do is, and I did not know this, um, they would open them for us because it would dry out. It would get real dry. And to keep it moist, they were put like whiskey inside it to keep it moist. So that right there was... Uh, was one of the kickers, just the thinking that maybe I could just have one or two at this port or maybe just one at this port, which turned into, you know, we were doing a lot with the Spanish army. They would actually serve wine or beer with their meals. And it just kind of, uh, I gave in. So now I'm out of the Marine Corps, um, starting working starting my life i get back to michigan i moved back home the drinking continued and then i got a dui the drinking continued I, there was just it was out of control there was no stopping it was a runaway train but my other buddies his name's kevin he got a dui so i would drive him around he was still drinking he got his license back he got another dui i was like dude i can't drive you around anymore he gets his license back and uh wouldn't be damned if he gets a third. We were packing for an ice fishing trip to Wisconsin. And my wife called me and she said, um, Kevin just committed suicide. She's like, you need to come home. I got my truck and I told my brother and stuff. I mean, Kevin was one of like my family's best friends. I've known him since third grade. I drove to Kevin's cause he lived right down the street from me and I knew where the spare key was. I walked into the garage. And it was like an instant flashback of when I was in the Marines cleaning the bathroom. It just, I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't handle it. Kind of, it kind of really fucked me up good. But that really ramped up drinking to the point where I would wake up. I was starting to have nightmares, but the nightmares would consist of seeing the guy in the Marine Corps to seeing Kevin and, you know, having conversations with him. And the conversations would be with them in the shape um, afterwards, to say the least. My anxiety level was through the roof. My nerves, stress, everything. And I had three daughters at the time. I just I couldn't. The only way I could cope was was with alcohol. So it seemed, you know, Right. with that happening, it just continued. It just kept continuing on. Once the pandemic hit, um, my dad has a stroke. He's in the hospital. We couldn't see him. All we could do is talk to him through a window. He was dying and there was no, um, no way to, no way to connect with him, you know, and yeah my dad was an alcoholic but i love my dad i love him once my dad passed this was just over a year ago that's when i seriously started i had to i had to stop i couldn't do it anymore you know it just i couldn't i couldn't do it anymore there was one night that uh my wife was out in the garage and i was talking to my kids on the couch and i was drunk and I could just see the look in their face. You know, you know how your kids look at you and you can just tell that they're they're disappointed. It made me think of my mom. And I went in my bedroom and I just started crying. I got on Instagram and um, I typed in sober. The Soba Sisters popped mm-hmm. up. So I just hit message and I sent a message. I had no idea who I was messaging. I had no idea what the hell I was doing and Within minutes, I had another mess. I got a message back saying, "You don't have to do this by yourself. There is help." And she said, "You need to. You should check out the sober buddy." So I let it sit in my memory bank for a couple days, and that's when I started looking into it. It's like, uh, you know, I want to say, "Here I am," because if if I if I would have never got a reply on that message. I, I'd probably still be the same. I'd probably still be the same, you know, that nothing would have changed. And now here I am.
0: It's incredible. I'm so, sort of speechless. Um, there's so much information there and it's such a traumatic series of events. It feels like watching a film or reading a book where there's a pressure cooker and all these things are happening and you're thinking, how much more can one person do? take that is that's so much stuff and you're i can sort of almost still imagine that boy crawling under that door to get the water and yeah. thinking it's the same child he's never really had a chance to grow up and learn coping skills and and to experience life in a in a in a safe and happy danger-free zone where he's allowed to progress his brain and meet people and feel like he can actually focus on himself and life. It feels like you were just sent straight into the deep end. And it was just nonstop. I just, I've never heard a story like it.
2: I like the way you put that. It, you're right. It, I was, I was thrown in, I was thrown in the deep end. I finally reached out to the VA. The VA now has so much more to offer for everybody. So I went through a, uh, a six month sleeping disorder class for my nightmares they uh diagnosed it with uh with the ptsd and it took me a long time it took weeks months to to finally open up even to my therapist and and she was like you were one of the toughest nuts to crack she was like usually people just kind of open up she's like i didn't i didn't know if you were ever gonna break And I'm like, you don't understand how long I've held this in Um, from everybody.
1: It's so devastating and far reaching, just so far reaching beyond the person. It's a wonder that he had an issue with alcohol because once again, rewind, it's all he ever learned. It's all he ever learned on how to cope with heavy things like this, because no one ever stepped in and said, you know, you actually need help. Like you actually need to talk to someone like the alcohol is not solving these problems. It's just making things bigger and worse for you.
0: I mean, another thing that he brought up that kind of mirrors a lot of our previous episode and things that are coming up a lot is the whole disappointment. And it's weird, isn't it? Because when you are in the crutches of alcohol and you feel like you've disappointed someone, what do you do? You go out and drown your sorrows. I mean, mm-hmm. that phrase in itself, you're not drowning your sorrows. That makes it sound like you're kind of pushing your sorrows under the water and letting them go float off down the stream. You're adding to them. You've got something else to feel guilty about. You're not dealing with the disappointment you're actually making yourself disappointed in yourself. And it's just growing and growing and growing, this load on your shoulder. You're never lightening it. I, and, you know, it's, it's. I know in the end, it was his daughters who sort of, he said the way they looked at him that kind of pushed him to reach out on Instagram to the sober community and ask for
1: help. The disappointment he saw in his daughters was the same one that he saw from his mom. And I feel like that's where he made this connection of it's got to be different. Like, I can't go back to drinking because I don't want to do that again. Like, I don't want to have to disappoint anyone ever again. And that's part of like that shift in your mind where you finally understand and admit to yourself that it is a problem and that it isn't helping, but you have to get to that point to finally get the help reach out because it's really hard to reach out for help. And yeah, I'm a woman. I mean, I know for men, it's even harder. I mean, and then a man that was in the military and it's all about being a man and being strong and being mentally tough. And that's great. And I think he is in a lot of areas of his life, but to make these men feel like, part of that is also not being able to talk about things that bother you. That's where there's a huge problem. And that's where all of these things start happening with the suicides and the PTSD and just not knowing how to ask for help. And I think it's great that Ricky is setting an example, right? He's sharing his story. And he said that he wants to find ways to help others who are maybe like him, who are afraid to admit that they need help or don't know where to go to ask for help or don't want to disappoint people if they fail. That's what's so powerful about this story is that this man is almost a year sober and he is working through so much of his trauma. And yeah, he's he got emotional with us and he said it's something new, but he's doing it.
0: I mean, he said this is the first time he's really spoken about it and told his story. And it is incredible because, but you could can tell, can't you? you? can just tell the people who have experienced something and you don't know what it is, but they've got this empathy and this wonderful kindness and openness. And, okay. you know, he was helped by someone on social media. And he said, if they didn't reply to that message, he doesn't know where he'd be. He would probably still be drinking. He sent one message to one account. And, you know, that's the power of Instagram, I joined Instagram and the same thing, the community literally welcomed me with open arms and they said, come in, we're here, we'll help you. We might be in different corners of the world at different stages in our sobriety. But there's this once you've gone through sobriety, once you've clawed your way out of the darkness, that is alcohol addiction or dependency or gray area drinking when you're so scared when you don't like yourself anymore where you just think, I don't want to be this person. When you've managed to get out of that place, which sadly most people don't, most people carry on drinking. We are the rare few that are lucky enough to have found enough support and strength to get out of that and walk away from it. But once you find that and you realize, oh my gosh, this is so much better than anything I can imagine. You want to help other people, you know, and that's, you can clearly tell that from talking to him. That's what we're doing here, isn't it, Steph? We want to mm-hmm. give something back. We've had great support. We've listened to podcasts. We've read books. We've spoken to people. And we now want to do something like that for other people. And that's that's the beauty of it. Um, but if you were, if there's someone listening and they are feeling completely on their own and all their friends drink, their family drinks – and they know they want to stop, but they've got nowhere to start. What do you think? Where are the places from having a year behind us now? Where are the places that you can turn to, to get a bit of support? What do you think? You know,
1: just what I know now, there's a lot of places, but what I didn't know is that there was a lot of places, right? Because you just think, you need someone directly in your life to help you, right? You're looking Mm -hmm. for someone else to get sober with you. That's kind of where I was at. And I went 99 days before I even got on Instagram. But for me, it was finding finding books and podcasts Mm -hmm. and those things. And that's why I love that we talk about where you can find help on these podcasts because that's kind of what directed me to the community that I'm in now on Instagram. And it's figuring out what is going to work for you community wise as well, because I'm very introverted. So I liked Instagram because I don't have to like be in a group setting with people because being in a group is triggering for drinking because for me, that's how I socialized because I don't like to socialize in big crowds. I like more one-on-one, but I always socialized in big crowds. And so I needed alcohol to get through it. So you have to know what's going to work for you. Don't push yourself to go to a big AA meeting if that's going to give you a lot of anxiety. You know, maybe find a therapist and or find, you know, someone on social media, find these groups and reach out through DM and make it more one on one. I mean, you
0: just really have to align with what's going to work for you. I agree. And I knew I needed a challenge. And I went to um, Soberistas, which is a a website where you join a group and and you can do this 100 day challenge. And I thought, that's what I need. And you get put in groups and you're all on the same kind of you're on day, you hit day 10, day 20, day 30. And that really got me through those first 100 days. And then I also found Instagram after that, because I thought I need more now I need something to keep me going. But I think There is more. There are charities popping up. There are different websites that offer help with all of these things. I mean, the internet has just exploded since Ricky was in the Marines. And as he said, Mm -hmm. we didn't used to have mobile phones and laptops and iPads. We didn't have anyone. And he literally went through the yellow pages to find an AA meeting and went, which is just, I I just respect him even more for that. Mm -hmm. There is someone out there who will have a similar story to you, and who will be able to help. And that gives me so much comfort. Preventative is always better than a cure. But let's be honest, there are millions of people out there who have a problem. And a lot of them don't realize there's anywhere
1: to go. If that's one thing we can get across in this episode is don't ever be afraid to reach out and, and ask for help and ask for support. Because there's so many ways to get it these days. There's so many options out there.
0: And the people want to be useful and helpful. You are not a bother. The amount of messages I get that start with, I'm really sorry to bother you. I you know. know I reply, you are not bothering me at all. Please ask away. If I can help, I can. And I'm not alone. We all feel that way. And And I think once you feel like you're not doing this on your own, you're halfway there because it gives you the strength. When your legs are weak, and that someone else goes grab my arm I'll go with you you suddenly get the strength to go on don't you and and to try mm-hmm. new things and you become braver and more excited so you know you're absolutely right Steph if you're interested or you feel like you want to do this and you don't feel like you've got the support it is out there and you will find your people I promise you that that that's a really nice way to end this episode Steph yeah. I think
1: yeah, I just want to thank Ricky again for for being so courageous. I agree.
0: Right. Time to go. I'll see you Time soon. Cheers, Steph. Bye, Kate. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, we're just two women from opposite sides of the pond wanting to bring awareness around the negative effects of alcohol. We are not licensed therapists or doctors. If alcohol is causing any mental or physical health issues, please seek professional help.
1: Please be sure to give us a follow so you don't miss future episodes. If you think our podcast could help someone you know, please be sure to share it. Also, leaving a five-star review will help The Sober Effect reach more people like you.
0: The music for this show was produced and recorded by Pearl and Thumbelina Jim of the wonderful Charm Jar Music. More information can be found in our show notes.